Let's turn to Matthew 6. I just came back from a trip to the coast, to the Oregon coast, where I spent a week teaching a, a group of young men and young women at Akola Hall. Akola uh, Hall is a training center, much like Cape and Ray Fellowship and their training centers around the world, is actually patterned after Cape and Ray. And uh, I taught the book of Galatians twice uh, a day for an entire week. And uh, it was an interesting time. Uh, the further I got into the week, the more I became aware of the fact that there were really two groups of young people there. There were a group of kids that came from Christian homes. Many of them had been Christians for a long time. They were rooted in Scripture. They had a vast understanding of truth. And none of it meant anything to them. Now, that's not true right across the board. But for many of them, they simply didn't care. It was just more information that, that, that they were getting. From an outward perspective, they were very proper and decorous in their behavior, and they had everything arranged properly theologically, and they were very orthodox, and their, and their lives were very orthodox. But there was something missing. I sensed it all along. On the other hand, there were a group of kids there who had come out of the drug scene, and most of them had just recently become Christians, and their lives were an absolute mess. Just a mess. They weren't doing anything right. They were struggling. Two or three of them had to be thrown out of the camp while I was there, and, and it was just tough times for many of them. There's one girl particularly that um, uh, cornered me the last day of, of school. She, was, she left home when she was 12 years of age because she couldn't stand her mother anymore, and uh, had lived by herself. She was about 22 or 23, I guess, or is now about that age, and during all this uh, time, 11 or 12 years, she had been by herself, pretty much on her own. And, you know, her hair was sticking up like this. She looked like an explosion in a mattress factory, and all these weird clothes, purple socks, and she was strange. But she really had a heart for God. She just hungered to know God and to get everything right in her life. And told her about C.S. Lewis's comment that God is in the business of making bad people good and good people better. And, and tried to encourage her along the lines that, that she was moving because her, her heart was so hungry for the Lord, but she was struggling and failing and wasn't getting everything together. And I sensed that's what delights the heart of God. Is someone like that. God doesn't look for perfection. He looks for progress. And when he sees someone with a hungry heart, that's what he responds to. Now, that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 6. Let's look at this passage together this morning, the first 18 verses. <clears throat> now, Jesus begins with a statement of principle. He establishes a fact. And then he illustrates that fact by drawing from three religious practices uh, from the Jewish religion, three expressions of their piety. The fact um, is stated in verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. Now, that's, that's a truth. That's reality. And God is not at all concerned about the outward practice of our religion, the rigmarole that we go through, unless the heart is right. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And the reality of our relationship with our Lord Jesus is shown by what happens inside. What happens when the doors are closed and the, the shutters are drawn, the lights out, when you're in a strange uh, town where no one knows you, or in the secret of your own thoughts. What goes on there? That's always the issue. That's the test. Not what people see. 
Now, Jesus demonstrates that principle by referring to three practices, three religious practices of the Jews. And these were primarily the ways in which they exhibited their piety. Almsgiving in verses 2 through 4, prayer in verses 5 through 15, and fasting in verses 16 through 18. Jesus says, when, for example, you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And the term that he uses there means payment in full. That's it. That's all they get. It's the only reward they have. It's what they receive from men. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. See what he's saying? Now, he's probably alluding to some practice that was well known in that day, because he simply states the facts without elaborating uh, on them, and we don't know precisely what that practice was, but apparently the, the Pharisees of Jesus' day would go through the middle of town, with their entourage, blowing trumpets before them, and they would give alms to poor people along the way as a display of, uh, of their piety. Uh, they apparently believed in John L. Lewis's uh, philosophy of life that, that he who tooteth not his own horn will not be tooted. And uh, they wanted people to know that they were givers, that they gave alms to the, to the poor. They acted in, they, they carried out acts of mercy toward people in need. Jesus says, if you do that, you have your reward. That's all you get. And what God sees is that inner attitude of heart, that willingness to give of our time and our money and our, our effort and our possessions, our things, without, without thinking in terms of who sees and who knows and who recognizes that I'm doing these, uh, these gracious acts. You see? I had a Christian... A friend called me one day, and he doesn't live here in Boise, and none of you know him, so there's no way you can possibly reconstruct uh, his identity. But he called me one day, and he said, hey, I have a great idea. He was raising money for a school. And he said, you have a friend who has a lot of money, don't you? And I just happened to have a friend at that time who had a lot of money. And uh, he said, I just, I don't know, it just hit me last night. Must be from God. I'm going to ask him for a gift for this gymnasium that we're building, and um, we'll name the gymnasium after your friend. And I'm sure that will appeal to him. The uh, John Q. Smith Memorial Gymnasium. He said, what do you think of that idea? And I thought for a moment or two, and I said, well, that sounds to me like the most unchristian thing I've heard this week. And uh, Carolyn was in the kitchen and almost dropped a plate about at that point. But I really did feel that way because it's in direct violation of what Scripture is saying. And in fact, what I thought of but didn't say was, why don't we name the gym after you and then this man will get the reward and you won't. But I didn't say that. But you see, he completely missed the point. You know, this is the way the world gives. I endow a chair and, I, and it's named after me or I give money for a building and they put my name on the entrance to the building and I'm recognized as a giver. God says, who cares except me? That's what matters. So don't let your left hand know what your right hand is. Don't even take counsel with yourself. That's when, Just give. When somebody has a need, give. Don't worry about what income tax break you can get. If you can get it, fine. If you can't, don't worry about it. Just give of your time and your energy and 
your money and your possessions, your vehicles, just give because that's the demonstration of a generous heart. And there's no end of the good you can do if you don't care who gets the credit for it. You see what he's saying? The real test is what happens here. Now, I want to skip over the second illustration because we're going to come back to it and look at the third in verses 16 through 18. And whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance in order to be seen fasting by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Again, that same, that repeated uh, statement, that refrain, that's it. That's all they get. They're paid in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your, fa wash your face so that you may not be seen fasting by men, but by your, by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Now again, there's some practice here we're not familiar with. They, they disfigured themselves in some way so they would appear to be fasting. Maybe they put flour on their face so they would look weak and wan and pale. And, and they walked the streets and uh, just looked emaciated so everyone would know that they, that they were fasting. You see, because they wanted people to recognize how pious and righteous they were. Now, now, Jesus is not here advocating fasting. This is not a command. There may be reasons why we fast. Uh, some of them may not be based on piety. There may be other reasons we ought to fast. And there is a legitimate reason to fast. Sometimes may, we may want to set aside the normal desires of the body because we're preoccupied with spiritual things. That's legitimate. We need to recognize that that doesn't give us any more power than we already have. We already have everything God is going to give us. We simply need to appropriate more and more of what God has already made available to us. But we might, as Christians, legitimately want to fast for a period of time, set aside the normal physical desires we have because we're preoccupied with spiritual things. That's legitimate. But Jesus is not here commanding it. That's not his point. He's simply saying, whenever you do these things, don't do them for men, do them for me. Whatever disciplines you impose upon yourself, they're between you and me. No one needs to know. Now let's go back to his second illustration because it's this one that Jesus amplifies for us and this seems to uh, lead us to the major uh, issue that our Lord is concerned with. When you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. This practice we do know something about. They, they did stand on the street corners, down like on the corner of Main Street and 10th Avenue, and they prayed in public, and they would, they would pray, and then they would, they would walk four paces, and they would pray some more and walk four more paces and pray. And the whole thing was all done for show, to let people know how pious they were. Jesus says, don't do that. Don't pray for that purpose. When you pray, go into your inner room, and when you have shut your door, Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. The inner room here is the storeroom, like your uh, furnace room. The point is, go to a, a, a place that's quiet and secret that no one knows about. I was raised on the King James Version, and there it's translated, go into your closet, and I never could understand that because the closet seemed like the worst possible place to pray. All those clothes hanging down, you have to crawl over the shoes, you know, and smells like mothballs. I was always afraid I'd OD on camper fumes while I was in there. But uh, that's not the point. Jesus is not saying that we need to go into our closet per se. He's saying go to a place where no one knows. And a Good night. Talk about fasting. 
That's a button on my coat. <laughs> I'll do it, Lord. I'll do it. <laughs> His point is, is, is it, it's a matter between you and God. You see? That's what's important. And he goes on to say in verse, uh, verse 7, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Now, he's not saying that it's wrong to repeat yourself in prayer. Jesus repeated himself in prayer. We know in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed at least three times, and that's probably an idiom that signifies numerous times of prayer. He went back to the Father with his request. It's not repetition that he's prohibiting. It's meaningless repetition. Just using words that don't mean anything. See? I uh, uh, had, a, had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to open the uh, House of Representatives session in prayer at the State House. And uh, the morning I was supposed to go up there, I was writing out my prayer. And I was thinking, wow, boy, now that, that's a neat turn of the phrase here, and this one will get one, get them. And, and I had that thing, and oh, it was a dandy prayer. It was a winner. And about halfway through, I thought, what in the world am I doing? I, I thought of Gladstone's comment about the Archbishop of Canterbury who prayed the greatest prayer ever prayed to the British Parliament at one point. You know, who was I praying to? I... The Lord doesn't want that sort of thing, just using words and, and uh, theological language to impress. Have you ever sat in a prayer meeting and rehearsed what you were going to say when you got up? I have. Thought the whole thing through. Prepared to pray in such a way that I'd impress everyone. It's that sort of thing that Jesus is talking about. Like the man who stood in a meeting one time and he prayed one of these long-winded theological prayers. Oh, thou great God who sitteth upon the circle of the earth, before whom the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And this little lady behind him tugged on his coat. said, just call him Father and ask him for something. <laughs> that's, what, that's what God wants. He just wants us to ask. You see what he says in verse 8? Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He knows. He knows. So prayer then is primarily for us. It does something to us more than what it than, than it does something to God. He's already aware of our needs. He's a Father. And that's why Jesus says, when we pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. You fathers know what it is to have a son who's always asking you things. Joshua just pesters me to death. You know, I got, I got off the plane yesterday and I... I just barely got off the plane. Hey, Dad, are we going to go buy a kite? Yeah, sure, son, we'll go buy a kite. When are we going to buy a kite? Well, right after lunch. I get the last bite of my sandwich down. Okay, Dad, now we're going to get the kite now, you know. And, and I go on out in front and sit in the car, and I'll, I'll be out there. And, oh, Dad, are you, now, you're going to get me a kite. Right. And that goes on day after day after day. He just pesters the life out of you. You see, that's the way a father is. And, and that's what delights the Lord. We can pester him. We can keep coming back. For reassurance, if nothing else, and just ask him. He doesn't care. He doesn't say, "What? Well, are you back here again? I talked to you yesterday. Don't come back till next week. See, that, that's not the sort of father he is. Now notice what he does. 
Jesus is not here laying down laws for prayer. These are not four things to pray for legalistically. He's, he's, he, the intent of what we call the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer is to show something of the heart of the matter, what the Lord is really after. And he gives us basically four things that we ought to ask in prayer, four, four things that, that prayer does for us. The first is in verses 9 and, and 10. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, may your name be special. May all the implications of what you are, that, that's what a person's name is, it signifies what they are. May all the, the implications of what you are in your person be exhibited. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Now Jesus is here saying one thing three times. And it's summed up in the last statement, may your will be done. Now, this is not a cry of resignation, you see. This is really a request that God's lordship or our Lord Jesus' lordship, Jesus' lordship, be expressed in us. This is the way we accede to his lordship. This is the way we submit to him. This is the sort of thing we do all through the day. As God's will happens to cut across ours, we have plans. We're going to do a certain thing at a certain time in a certain way, and God has an entirely different plan for us, and He frustrates us and thwarts us. And instead of getting all uptight, we need to say, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. That was the Lord's Prayer in Gethsemane. The Lord didn't want the cross, and He said, if possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Yours be done. Now, that's a one-time prayer that we pray, and it's a continuing prayer. Prayer. We acknowledge His Lordship. That's how we come into the family. And then that Lordship is worked out in our lives as moment by moment we accede to His will, whatever it is, even though we don't like it, even though it cuts across the grain and rubs us the wrong way. And we say, Lord, not my will, but Yours be done. One of the most poignant memories of my life was uh, uh, a friend of mine, Jack Crabtree, leaning against the wall of a, in a hospital outside the room where his little boy was was desperately ill, critically ill, praying, Lord Jesus, spare John David. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He prayed that prayer over and over and over again. And that's, that's what Jesus is trying to teach us. That's what prayer does for us. It's the means by which we submit to His will, whatever that will is. Now, the second uh, issue here, second aspect of prayer, is in verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, your daily bread uh, is the bread that you need for today. That's all that term means. And that's all God ever promises. He promises to meet our needs today, not necessarily tomorrow. When tomorrow comes, then He'll meet the needs of that day. But all He's ever promised is that we're, if we live in daytight compartments, if we trust Him for today, He'll take care of our needs through the day. We say, now, this is a strange prayer. Now, why should I pray for my daily bread? I, I get a check on the 1st and the 15th of every month, and I cash it and give give my wife uh, her part of the food uh, budget, and she goes down to the bakery and buys the bread. Why, what's the big deal? Why should you pray for daily bread? Well, the Lord's talking about more than bread. He's talking about all the needs of our life, the emotional needs, the physical needs, the spiritual needs, the psychological needs, the sexual needs, the needs for love and appreciation and worth and security and acceptance. See, we, we, we have to count on God for all of those things. I was talking to these kids back at Ecola Hall about 
personality needs that we have and the promise from Scripture that these things are ours if we'll simply lay hold of them. If you need love, ask Him for love and thank Him for it. If you need patience, say, Lord, I, need, you know, I, just can't, I can hardly live with this person. Thank you for the patience that I need to face into the demands of this day. Thank you. And we can ask and receive. And that's what Jesus means when He says, ask Him for your daily bread. Whatever your need is, ask Him. And what cures us from the gimmies is that we pray first for His Lordship. You see? If we begin by praying, Thy will be done, then we're going to ask for the right things. That's what our banner tells us here. Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart because your desires will become His desires. So that's where we begin in prayer. Lord Jesus, I want what You want no matter what it costs. And then throughout the day, we ask Him to supply whatever it is that we need. And then the third aspect of prayer here is in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Now Luke translates this term uh, transgressions. As you know, forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who transgress against us. Apparently Jesus used an Aramaic term in his message on the mount that was ambiguous, sufficiently ambiguous that it could be translated either way, either debts or or transgressions. We don't know what term he used. But it gives us some insight into our Lord's understanding of sin. Sin puts us in debt to God. Prayer, therefore, is one way that we discharge our debt to God because we're obligated to be holy. That's not an option. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we're told, be holy. Told by God, be holy because I am holy. Be different. Be special. Be unique in the world. Be like me. And who can do that? I can't, and you can't, so I'm always in debt to God. And how do I discharge that debt? How do I rid myself of the guilt that I have? Well, I just go through the day saying, thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. Forgive me for that. Forgive me for this. And the Lord never says, nope, I'm sorry, that's too many times. Third time's a charm. And there's no forgiveness any longer. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have forgiveness according to the riches of His grace. That's an infinite account. You cannot draw that account down to zero. That means we're forgiven for all our debts, past, present, and future, any debt, any debt you've incurred in the past. You're already forgiven. Prayer will help you to enter into the experience of that forgiveness. Just thank God that you're forgiven. And when you fail, ask again for forgiveness because it comes with no strings attached. Suppose you had a banker who always gave you everything you wanted. Wouldn't that be marvelous? You needed $1,000 to live on this, uh, this week or this month, so you go to your banker and, you, and he says, here you are. And he peels off 10 $100 bills and hands them to you. And you say, now wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm already in debt to you about a million dollars. It's all right. It's nothing on the books. It's all forgiven. And we said, now wait a minute. Something's wrong here. No, there's nothing on the books. You're forgiven. Well, I don't even know how I'm going to pay back this thousand. You don't have to. And that's the way God is. He just gives and He gives and He gives. And the slate is always clean. And we never have to pay Him back by our good actions. That's what the, that's what the, the Jews of Jesus' day thought they had to do. You know, we have a tendency to divide sins into the, you know, they're the biggies. They're the, they're the big sins that really do decimate your spiritual life. They set you way back. And then there are the little sins that don't amount to a whole lot. 
And every once in a while we'll send one of the big sins and then we think, now I'm going to be disqualified for the next week from doing anything spiritual. God is really angry, He's frowning, and I can't expect to receive anything from Him. And so I'm going to have to, to try hard to do better this week and at the end of the week then God will, He's back on duty and I can trust Him for things. And we just don't understand the character of God because He's forgiven us all our trespasses, every one of them. And the slate's clean. And when we sin, God never says, Oh, no, not again. I thought I told you not to do that. We're forgiven. So prayer, therefore, is the way in which we discharge our obligation to God. There's a fourth uh, item uh, to which Jesus leads us. Verse 13, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It sounds as though the Lord is, is responsible for those temptations that we feel, but He's not. We know from Scripture, we know from James, that God does not tempt anyone. He doesn't seduce us to sin. He may test us. He may bring into our, into our life difficult circumstances that are designed to build, but He doesn't draw us into sin. So what does Jesus mean? Well, this word temptation is a word that grammarians would call a pregnant expression. That is, there are truths within this expression that need to be expressed. What Jesus meant by this, by this term was don't lead us into those temptations that, that result in sin. And the next line makes it very clear that what he's after is deliverance. In other words, deliver us from everything. When we're headed into those circumstances that we know are going to test and strain our self-control, we can cry out, Lord, deliver me. Protect me. Don't let me get into situations that cause me to stumble and fall. Take care of me. I'm dependent upon you for everything. These are those quick shots that we address in God's direction when the heat's on and we're tempted to tell a lie or we're tempted to think to let an immoral thought become more than a mere thought. And we say, Lord, help. And He delivers us. And you see, as I look through these things, I, what I want you to see is that this is not a legalistic pattern for prayer. What the Lord is saying is that it all depends upon Him. Everything does. And prayer is simply the highest expression of our dependence upon Him. And we need to pray about everything. Our anxiety, our fear, our frustration, the times of pressure, the times that we know that we're inclined to, to fail and fall, those times that we need to accede to His Lordship and we're struggling with it and we don't want His will. We can pray, Lord, your will be done, and express our dependence and our weakness in that way. And those times when we're guilty or when we're under pressure to sin. You see, what the Lord is after is not perfection, but progress. And what he sees is not the outer man, but the heart and the attitude, that hungry passion for him. And those times when we cry out to Him in desperation, that's what delights Him, you see. He doesn't like our self-confidence because He knows that it's ultimately destructive. What He rejoices in is our dependence, even if we're not performing as we know we should. One of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament for me is Jacob. You know, God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I can understand God being the God of Abraham. Who wouldn't want to be the God of Abraham? He's a neat guy. 
He walked by faith. And Isaac, though he was a second generation believer, was, uh, he was a man of faith. But Jacob, what a rascal. He never did anything right. He was always scheming and conniving and manipulating people and he was the biggest con man that ever lived. But at the end of his life, Hebrews says, he blessed his children leaning on the head of his bed. In other words, he was dying. He didn't have an ounce of strength left in his body. And when he was dying, he quit trying. He just committed his kids to the Lord and he said, all right, Lord, they're yours. And he stopped his manipulating and his attempts in the flesh to try to be something. And you see, God saw that all along, that way down deep under the surface that where nobody else saw, Jacob was a man who had a heart for God. And God saw that and he cultivated that seed. About halfway through the conference uh, at Ecola Hall, I, I became aware of this, uh, this uh, little gal. She actually wasn't little. She was about 25 years old, but she was small. And she was really a pest. She really got under my skin. She would sit down at the even, you know, the, we all sat at tables and there were six chairs at the table and she'd pull up another chair and sit down, make a seventh person. And every time I was involved in a discussion, she was standing on the outside and she'd butt right in and ask a question. And after about the second day, she really got on my nerves. She was rude and uh, not very attractive in personality. And besides, she was asking me all these questions I couldn't answer and that was even worse. And she what do you do about this? And why, why do you do that? And, and, no, why don't you do? Why did you say this yesterday? And uh, after a while, I wised up. She was a little gal who's, who, who just started out life all wrong. Everything was wrong in her family, and she was, she just had a tremendous hunger for God, but she was struggling in almost every area of, of her life. And I, and what came to mind was the story in the Gospels. We'll get into it later in Matthew of the Canaanite woman that Jesus uh, talked to. He went over to Tyre and Sidon and this Canaanite lady showed up and she was, a, she was a pest. She wouldn't leave him alone. And here Jesus was trying to teach his disciples and he was trying to instruct all these sober-minded people who were sitting around listening and nodding and this lady, hey, hey, wait, 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 I got a question. And she just kept butting in and butting in and making a pest of herself and finally the Lord turned around and he looked at her and knowing the Lord, I'm sure he said it with a twinkle in his eye. He said, now look, is it really right for me to take the bread that belongs to the children and give it to the dogs? He was using the terminology that the Jews used, that everybody else but a Jew was a dog. And the Phoenicians and Canaanites were especially dogs. And so I'm, I'm sure the Lord said it with a, with a big smile on his face. And Is it really right for me to take the bread off the table, out of the children's mouth? And give it to the dogs? And she was sort of a feisty little thing. And she said, yeah, but Lord, uh, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table. And the Lord said, now that's what I'm looking for. That's exhibit A of faith. That's what delights the heart of God. He's not at all impressed, you see, by our outward behavior if there's nothing inside. That's all rigmarole. It doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Unless there's something real inside. That's what delights him. And we can be orthodox as all get out in our theology and we have all of our ducks in a row eschatologically and we know when everything's going to happen and we use the right version of the Bible and all the rest of it. And if there's no reality in our life, we've missed the whole point. That's where we have to begin. With a heart that's open and submissive and responsive. 
to the Lord Jesus. And He'll take it from there. Let's pray, shall we? Father, You have the right to inspect our lives, to open our hearts and see what's there. And we acknowledge that right and ask You to to put Your finger again on those areas of our life where we're unwilling to allow You to be Lord. We want to be real and genuine and honest in our relationship to You. Give us the heart to believe You. In Jesus' name, Amen.